The following message is brought to you by MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church. We are many stories made one family by one gospel. If you would like to connect with us, please check out our website at MacArthurBoulevard.org. As you're seated, you can open your Bibles, find the book of Revelation chapter 2. We get into chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 7. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. This is the first of seven letters that Jesus is going to send to seven churches that were in the western part of Asia Minor, what is today known as at least a portion of Turkey. These are seven real historical churches. And if you look at all seven letters together, you'll notice that they fall into three distinct groups. The first and the last of the letters, or the churches of those first and seventh letters, are in grave spiritual danger. The second and the sixth of the churches that are addressed here are both churches that have remained faithful even in the face of intense persecution. And so they're the only two churches that don't receive any correction from King Jesus. And then the middle three churches are, are similar in that there's a mix of some who have remained faithful within the church, but then the others who have uh, compromised in some way or another uh, with the world around them. We'll also see that this is the first in a series of sevens that we're going to come to in the book of Revelation. We have seven letters, and then we're going to talk about seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, because the favorite number in the book of Revelation is seven. So we start with the seven letters. John, or Jesus here, through John, begins with the church located in Ephesus. Ephesus would have been the most economically significant of these seven cities. Also, geographically, would have been the closest church to John, who, remember, is at Patmos. In fact, if you look at the order in which these churches are addressed in chapters 2 and 3, it's the same order that a messenger would travel along a major postal route that existed in the Roman Empire at this time as he delivered the letters to these seven churches. What I want you to see is that the message and the warning of this letter to the church in Ephesus proves to be absolutely foundational to the spiritual health of any Christian and of any church today. This message rings incredibly relevant for churches today and for Christians today, including us here at MacArthur Boulevard. And so as I've been in this text all week, my prayer has been is that we as a people in our church would hear the message of this letter that was intended not just for the original Christians who received it, but was intended for us as well. Okay, verse 1 introduces the letter for us. Look at verse 1. It says, Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, the church in, in Ephesus had a really amazing pedigree. Uh, we know that the apostle Paul had 
stopped at this church on three different occasions, spent multiple years in this church. Beyond that, Priscilla and Aquila did ministry in the church in Ephesus. The eloquent Apollos did ministry in Ephesus. In, in, in fact, uh, the apostle John himself um, did a lot of ministry in, in Ephesus, believed that it was in Ephesus that served as kind of a headquarters from where John wrote his gospel and his three letters. And so this is a church that has a history of faithful Bible teaching. They enjoyed faithful leadership through the years. I also point out that it's addressed specifically to the angel of the church in Ephesus. We talked last Sunday about how that phrase, the angel of the church, might refer to a, um, the, the pastor or a lead pastor within the church, a human messenger of God for the congregation, or it might refer to a literal angel that somehow represents the church in the spiritual realm. Either way, the angel of the church is intended to represent the entire church. So when he's writing to the angel of the church of Ephesus, he's intending this message to be heard by the entire church. Now, all seven of these letters share a very common structure. Each letter begins by referencing one of the descriptions of the exalted Christ that we heard last Sunday from chapter 1. And what's interesting is the description that Jesus uses to introduce himself in each letter actually corresponds to the problem that that particular church is facing. Okay, so for Ephesus, Jesus introduces himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, which remember is um, a sign of his authority over the church. The church belongs to Jesus he is the head of this spiritual family, and it says he is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, Jesus walking among the lampstands, which remember represents the churches, means that he is able to notice when something isn't right in one of his churches, when something is missing in the church. The visual of the church as a lampstand, remember, demonstrates the purpose of the church to shine the light of God's presence in the world. But as Jesus is walking among the lampstands here, he sees that something is off with the light that is coming out of the church in Ephesus. Their light had grown dim. Something was missing in this church. Now, before he corrects the problem that he sees, he's going to begin by commending them for what they are doing well. And this order is consistent through all of the seven letters. Each letter except one begins with a word of commendation of what that church is doing well, followed in all the letters except for two by a correction or a rebuke of a problem that Jesus sees in the church. The letters then close with a proposed solution to the problem and a warning of the consequences if they, they do not address the problem that he has identified and then ultimately closes out with a promise for those who conquer. We're going to follow that same order as we look at this first letter this morning and we're going to consider what can we, as the people of Christ today, what can we learn from this church here in Ephesus. Remember, the seven churches are intended to represent the whole, capital C, church, the bride of Christ. Thus, 
the problems in these churches are problems that can manifest in any church and in any Christian life throughout any age. Okay, these warnings and these encouragements are written for us too. So let's hear what the present priest wants to say to us this morning. Let's consider what can we learn first by looking at what the Ephesians were doing well. First is the commendation. We can learn this from the commendation. It is good to be a church of doctrine and diligence. Okay? It is good. This is what we can learn. It is good to be a church of doctrine and diligence. This is verses 2 and 3. Pick up with me in verse 2. It says, I know your works, your labor and your endurance, that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know how you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. Now drop down to verse 6. That's where the commendation wraps up. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, you can sum up this commendation in two words. The Ephesians were faithful in their doctrine and in their diligence in their service to the Lord. He says, I know your works. I know your diligent labor. I know that despite trials and persecution, you have been faithful to continue to serve me and do ministry in my name. You haven't been lazy. You've been active in the work of the Lord, and I commend you for this. You are a church of diligence. And even more than their diligence, the Ephesians were a people of sound doctrine, right? I mean, having had the likes of Paul and John and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and, and even Timothy who did ministry in this church, this church knew their Bible. Okay? They knew their Bible and they loved their Bible and they loved studying the Bible. Doctrine was a priority in this church. And we know that because it tells us that they would not tolerate false teachers. Jesus says you don't tolerate those false teachers who call themselves apostles, who move from city to city, church to church, as wolves in sheep's clothing. You test their teaching. You recognize that it is error. And you reject it. And he says, I commend you for that. One of the heretical movements that they identified was that of the Nicolaitans. We, we don't know a whole lot about what this movement was or believed. Evidently, it taught some type of antinomianism, which emphasized Christian liberty to the point where they were affirming and even encouraging sexual immorality, which was very common amongst the religious cult of Ephesus in this culture. But, 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 but the Ephesians would have none of it. They, they, they knew their Bible. They saw that that teaching does not align with truth, and we reject it. Okay, this was a church of doctrine and diligence for which they are commended. And guys, it is good. It is good to be a people. It is good to be a church of doctrine and diligence. Okay, Jesus is not pleased with those who fail to steward their God-given gifts for the work of the Lord and the ministry of the Lord, who simply sit 
and soak and receive without ever getting off the sideline watching other people engage in the mission of God. He cares about your diligence. Neither is Jesus pleased with those who minimize the importance of truth and doctrine. As it's really popular in our culture, it feels right within our culture to minimize the significance of doctrine, suggesting that doctrine is the cause of all of this division, and it ultimately does more harm than good. It is not uncommon in our day to find churches that out of a good desire to engage unchurched people have so watered down the teaching ministry of the church that the believers in the church don't know what they believe or why they believe it. And then as a result, they are tossed to and fro by whatever they consume on TV or the moves, the news or podcasts. As this is not commendable. Okay, before... Before we hear the correction that Jesus has for this church, we have to take seriously his commendation. It is good to be a people. It is good to be a church of doctrine and diligence. So consider your own life this morning. Do you diligently serve Jesus? Are you stewarding the gifts he's given you in ministry? Do you understand your Christian faith? Do you understand why you believe what you believe? Would you be able to talk to your Muslim neighbor and explain to them why a belief in a triune God is not incompatible with the belief that there is one God? Could you articulate that? Parents, do you have the ability to recognize how the show, the movie that your child is watching is actually presenting a worldview contrary to the truth of the scriptures. Would you be able, are you able to sit down with them and have that conversation and help them to understand what the truth of God's word says? Jesus says, no, it is good. It is good to be a people of doctrine and diligence. And I wanna, I wanna make sure you hear me this morning that we're not minimizing the significance of doctrine, okay? It is good to be a people of doctrine and diligence. So hear that. Keep that in your file of your mind as we move on. It's good to be a people. It's good to be a church of doctrine and diligence. But, Jesus says in verse 4, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Here's the correction. Yes, it's good to be a people of doctrine and diligence. But the correction is that it is dangerous to be a church that has lost her love. First question we have to answer is what love is he talking about here? Some emphasize that he's talking about the love for Jesus himself. His love for God, our love for Jesus. Others say, no, he's focused here on uh, 
love within the church, our love for one another, that their affections for one another in the body has grown cold. Still others say, no, he's emphasizing a love for lost people, for the world. They've grown cold in their evangelism. They're not loving the nations like they used to. I say, Pastor Ricky, what do you say? What what is he talking about here? I, I, I would say that there's a reason that Jesus did not specify a particular object of love that had been lost because love cannot be compartmentalized like that. That love is either filling your heart or it's not. That love is a single circuit that runs throughout your heart. And when that circuit is broken at any point, whether toward God, people, or the world, it breaks and shorts out the charge of the entire circuit. That our love for God fuels our love for people. That you can't tell me you love God if you're not loving people. And if you're not loving God, it will affect your love for people. It's a single circuit, love. This is a church that had lost her most foundational virtue. She lost her love. Now hear me, all virtuous love, all virtuous love proceeds out from our love of Christ. Okay, our love for Jesus is the foundation upon which all our other love and relationships are built, which means that lacking love for people, whether it's people inside the church or outside the church, lacking a love for people is a symptom The disease is a loss of love for Jesus. That's at the core. So let's start by talking about the symptom. What might this symptom of lacking love for people look like? Have you seen Christians who have lost their love for for one another? Have you seen churches that have lost their love for one another. What does that look like? It's where inherent trust is replaced with a spirit of inherent suspicion of one another. That instead of assuming the best about one another, we assume the worst. That instead of trying to understand where another brother is coming from, another sister is coming from, we grow angry that they don't believe exactly how we believe and our focus shifts away from listening to understand them to just winning a debate. That patience and bearing with one another is replaced by becoming quick to anger. That we go to social media or we get in our groups behind closed doors and we choose sides and we take our stands with each other, defending our tribe or our group as if our brothers and sisters in the church are the enemy. Where we don't show respect and honor and value of one another. 
where we fail to submit to one another in love, but instead pursue our own desires and interests. Where speech that builds up the body and gives grace to those who hear is replaced with gossip and speculations and assumptions and grumbling. Where we grow cynical and critical of each other. Have you ever seen Christians in churches that have lost their love for one another? And I want to tell you that that lack of love that exists within the church will inevitably extend beyond the church, beyond the walls of a church, and beyond the boundaries of any one denomination. Okay, lovelessness will make us over time cold and jaded toward a lost world. We find ourselves talking more to one another about how evil and ignorant we think a lost culture is than actually talking to the people of that culture about how good Jesus is. Where we allow our anger toward the perversion of of human sexuality, or the rejection of the sanctity of human life, or our anger toward false religions, which is a good and righteous anger, but we allow anger to make us hard and cold and insensitive and at times downright hateful toward other people. We don't help people. We just want to tell them why they're wrong. We have no interest in understanding the hurt that is producing the sin in their lives so that we can minister the gospel to the hurt. Instead, we merely talk at people from a relational distance. And we call it Christianity. We, 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 we justify our lack of love by appealing to the importance of doctrine and truth as if you can't espouse doctrine and truth and still demonstrate love. Guys, the loss of love for people is the symptom. It's the symptom of the disease of a loss of love for Jesus. Okay, we see in Ephesus that just because you're diligent in ministry and in Christian activity and, and just because you're passionate about doctrine does not make you immune to this disease. What, what, what blows me away about the church in Ephesus is they hadn't replaced their love for Jesus with what we would often consider one of the sinful vices of the world. Their love for Jesus had been replaced, it seems, with a love for doctrine, something good. Of course, this isn't to say that you can't both love doctrine and Jesus, but they had allowed their love for truth and God's word to produce within them a callousness and a coldness toward people made in the image of God. Their love for God's word had made them defensive and inwardly focused and hard-hearted toward people because their love for doctrine and truth and learning had surpassed their love for Jesus. Now, guys, we're going to get to other churches that struggled with compromise and tolerating things that they shouldn't have tolerated. We'll get to those churches. That's not the issue in Ephesus. 
in Ephesus, they lacked love. And here's the, here's the main warning, kind of a, a main idea for this letter that you can write down. The major warning of this letter is that it is dangerous to love the Word of God without loving the Word of God. It's important that you see the lowercase and the uppercase W in that statement. By the capital W word of God, I'm of course referring to the living, eternal person of the word. The person Jesus Christ, who is to be the supreme object of our love. Guys, we sometimes forget that when we study the Bible, we're not just learning sets of propositions. We're not just learning propositions. We're learning a person. We're engaging with a person. That the Bible was written to point us to the person of Jesus that we might have an intimate love relationship with the person. Not the book, but the person. And this is, not to, this is not to denigrate the Bible at all. It is the only infallible way to know the person. But it's possible, it's possible to love the book without loving the person of the book. And if you struggle with that claim, evidence A is the church in Ephesus. They love the word of God. The book. But they had lost their love of the word of God. The person. And guys, Jesus is not pleased with that. The loss of love is no insignificant problem. In fact, I would suggest that it is the greatest of the problems. Because it breaks the greatest of the commandments. Jesus said that the greatest command, the one that sums up all other commandments, is to love God with our entire self and by extension to love people. We so often get bent out of shape by the specks of sin in other people's eyes while ignoring the plank of lovelessness in our own eye. And we wonder why we can't help others with their specks. It's why Jesus says down in verse 5, if you'll go down to verse 5, that if they don't repent of this, that he's going to remove their lampstand, which means that he's going to remove their status as a church. They'll cease to be a church because most, found, most foundationally, a church is to be a people marked by love. That, that love shines forth from us in this world, but if we lose, if we lose our love, we lose our light. And if we lose our light, we're no longer functioning as a church, as a lampstand, and Jesus will remove us as a lampstand. As you understand that, yes, Jesus wants you to know your Bible. <laughs> and yes, he wants you to be diligent in ministry, engaged in ministry. But what he wants most is your heart. It's your heart. 
he wants your standing on truth. And he wants you to stand on truth. But he wants that standing on truth and your diligence in ministry to be produced, to be fueled by a love for him. And I just, I want to reinforce this point a little bit more. I want you to consider the language that the Bible frequently uses to describe God's relationship with his people. One of the most frequently used metaphors that we find from literally Genesis through Revelation to describe God's relationship with his people is bridal language. The language of bride and groom. Now, of course, this is not to say that if you're single this morning that you're missing out on understanding how God wants to connect with you. Um, It's simply to say that God has hardwired into the created order a living demonstration of how he intends to relate to his people. A relationship that we can all enjoy regardless of stage or season of life. But he uses bridal language. The reward of Jesus' suffering on the cross is a beautiful bride adorned in righteousness that loves him. Jesus died in order to receive a bride that loves him. And guys, I can just let that seek in for a moment. This, This love saga between Jesus and his church was one that was planned before the foundations of the world. That in eternity past, God determined that a people made from the dust of the earth and brought out of death would become a bridal prize for his son with whom he would have a love relationship. That in the same way that God formed Eve by piercing Adam's side and taking out a rib and presenting her to him as a bride, in the same manner through the pierced side of Christ, God is forming a bride to present to his son. And he intends for that bride to love his son. Jesus looks at his people and he longs for a bride that loves him. He seeks neither slaves nor scholars primarily, but a bride who loves him. How de- if you are married, how devastating would it be, husbands, to hear your wife say, man, you stay so busy for me. I just don't feel like you love me like you used to. Jesus wants the same thing from his bride that any husband would want most. He wants our love. It is dangerous to love the word of God without loving the word of God. And so my question this morning to you is, have you lost in your own life, have you lost any of the love that you had at first. If so, then, then very quickly, I want to draw your attention to the call that Jesus gives to this church. The call is that we must return to the love of our youth. We must return to the love of our spiritual youth. This is verses 5, and then we'll look at verse 7. Look at verse 5. It says, remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. 
Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Drop down to verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A little phrase, the one who conquers, it's used repeatedly in these letters. We'll talk more about it later. It refers to those whose faith and love in God has persevered despite hardships, has persevered and endured to the end. And to those... God is going to give the gift, Jesus will give the gift of eternal life. Each of these promises brings in a description of the new heavens and new earth that we're going to read about in chapter 22. A piece of that picture is brought into each of these letters. Those, those descriptions work together to describe the gift of eternal life. Okay, So this is a call for them. What's the call? Threefold, remember, repent. And return to the works that you did at first. This is a call for them to return to the love of their spiritual youth. He says, I I want you guys to pause and to take time. Remembering is a mental activity. Reflect, consider the affections that first filled your heart. The love that first filled your heart when the Spirit of God opened your eyes to behold the beauty of Jesus. By the way, (laughs) if you have never loved Jesus like this, that's an indication that you might not know Jesus. And what I mean by that is that it is possible to grow up in the church and going to church and knowing a lot of stuff about Jesus, but to not actually know Jesus To look at your life and say, my my heart has never truly loved him. It's possible for a Christian to have their love and affections for Christ to ebb and flow and to wane and, and wax throughout their spiritual journey. But if you look at your own spiritual life and you say, I've never loved God like this. I've done some stuff for God, but my Christian life has just been, I go to church and I want to try to be a good person. Understand that's as evidence that you may not know God. And so even if the Spirit is showing you that this morning, it's an invitation, he's wooing your heart to come to him because God wants to have a love relationship with you. One that you receive through repentance and faith. He says, remember the love that you had at first, the affections that you had early on in your spiritual life. And then he says, repent, repent of lovelessness, repent of neglecting your relationship with Jesus, repent of allowing your intimacy with him to grow cold, repent of turning, listen, repent of turning of what God intended to be a love relationship into solely a working relationship or a long distance relationship. Confess it, repent. And then he says, return to the works you did at first. I believe this is referring to the simplicity of worship and the simplicity of communion with God, pursuing him, worshiping in his presence, hearing his voice, speaking back to him the words that he puts in your heart, communing with him, not primarily out of guilt or duty, but out of desire and delight because you love him. Let me tell you, God produces what he demands. If, if you will, by faith, begin to pursue him again, 
through, through the simplicity of worship and communion and prayer, by steps of faith pursuing after him, he will take those steps of faith and he will, the great high priest, he will, he will put greater measures of oil in your lampstand. He, he will renew the love that you had at first. He is faithful to produce within us the desire and the delight, the love that he wants from us. That we must return to the love of our youths. Now I want to just talk in closing here very practically for us as a church family. Last Sunday we talked about how uh, Friday after next on November 11th we're, we're, we're calling a, a special service. We're going to come together as a church family. We're calling it a night to delight in God. We've been talking about this since the members meeting in August. How we believe that God is leading us into a season as a church of, 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 of returning back to our first love, a renewal of our love for Jesus. And that's the purpose of this night, to delight in God, to recover any love for Jesus that's been lost in our lives, that's been lost in our church. We want it to be more than just a single night. We didn't talk about this as much last week, but I want to bring it into the picture this week. And so not only are we going to set apart this one night, this Friday night, but we're going to set apart that entire week, and we're going to call that to be a, a week of prayer and fasting. Okay, so what that's going to look like very practically is each night that week, leading up to the 11th, this is week after next, we're going to just gather for prayer up here at the church in the hospitality room. It'll start at 6 o'clock on Sunday, 6.30 the other nights. And guys, we recognize that you may not be able to come to every night, you may only be able to come one or, or twice that week, and that's fine. But for our church and for our own lives and families, as we're recognizing any loss of love and affection, we want to set apart this night to be a week of pursuing a renewal of intimacy and love with Jesus, culminating in this night to the light in God. It's also going to be a week of, of fasting. Next Sunday, we're going to give you a guide for um, ways that you might fast that week and a week where we're... We're abstaining from, from food or from something else in order to feast upon God. The, the purpose of these nights of prayer, the purpose of the night of delight, the purpose of our fasting is simply to seek a renewal of love, okay, in our own lives and within our church. A very practical way to respond to this warning that Jesus has for his churches.